Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, Allison. Cryptocurrencies are all the rage now. You know it, and I know it, even if none of us really understands it. So, that's what we're going to try to do today with the help of Motley Fool analyst Aaron Bush. He's going to explain the ins and outs of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies so that when your clueless friend asks, I've been hearing a lot about Bitcoin, should I invest in it? You'll know what to say. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Twitter. And it comes from MGuestND. They write, I am looking for a Vanguard ETF to provide international exposure. Do you have any suggestions that I should look into? Yes, and, and people are paying more attention to international investing these days. Since the recovery from the Great Recession, US stocks have significantly outperformed international stocks. So people stopped paying attention. This year is different. US stocks have still done well. Uh, most major markets are up 16% by the end of October. International market, depending on what you look at, up 25 to 30%. So you're seeing more people saying, like, oh, maybe I should get back into international investing. And one great way to do it is through Vanguard and a low cost index fund or ETF. So, yes, I have a suggestion. My first suggestion is the Vanguard FTSE All World XUS ETF. The ticker is VEU, FTSE standing for FTSE, Financial Times Stock Exchange. FTSE Russell are the folks who created the index, and then Vanguard just follows the index. And this is a Great improvement over some of the earlier international index funds, which mostly focused on developed countries from Europe and Asia, not Canada, not Latin America, but this ETF covers it all. And it also has developed markets as well as emerging markets. About 14% of the assets are in emerging markets. So that's a good start. However, if you were to ask most major firms about what they expect to outperform over the next five to 10 years, most people expect emerging markets actually to do better than most other asset classes. So I would recommend that you enhance this a little bit by also looking at Vanguard's Emerging Markets ETF. It is, has the ticker of VWO. One knock against that, it is almost a third of the assets are in China, so you have to be comfortable with that. And it doesn't have South Korea which these days people debate about whether South Korea is an emerging or a developed market or not. So that's, those are a couple of little knocks about that ETF, but I still think it makes sense. Also, both of those ETFs are market cap weighted, meaning they have big companies. Anywhere from 16 to 30 billion is around the average. If you want a little bit of small cap exposure, Vanguard also has an international small cap ETF, ticker is VSS, and the average market cap of the country's of the companies in that ETF around one to two billion dollars. So I think if you really want solid international exposure, I would consider a mix of those three. And as an allocation guidance, I would say maybe 30% of your assets should be international with 15% in VEU, that's sort of the umbrella ETF, 10% in emerging markets, and 5% in small caps. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are, you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all of the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. 
To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain. A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Bitcoin, the largest and most well-known cryptocurrency, is up 400% this year. It's really, uh, it, it's uh, actually quite volatile. So, as of taping this, I think it's up 400%. I don't know where it is at the time that you're listening to this. But it's causing everyone to stand up and take notice. In fact, a headline that I saw in Bloomberg just today said, one-third of millennials say they would rather own Bitcoin than stocks. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I thought the subhead should then read, one-third of millennials have just enough information to form dangerous opinions about Bitcoin. <laughs> so, joining us today to talk about Bitcoin, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is Aaron Bush. He's an analyst here at The Motley Fool. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, our discussion is mostly going to focus on Bitcoin since it is the I guess it's the first and the largest has the largest market cap success. It's it's basically the first successful cryptocurrency, right. correct? And it's got the largest market cap. So, we're going to focus on that one rabbit hole to go down as opposed to all the many rabbit holes that we can go down. Uh, it's very easy to get into the weeds. As far so, caveat, listeners, it's easy to get in the weeds as far as the history and the technical details of how this all works. But we're going to try and do our best to uh, make it accessible and understandable. Yeah, let's do it. I love your optimism. <laughs> so, the millennial, the the headline that I read earlier about one third of millennials would say they'd rather own Bitcoin in stocks. Uh, it's surprising, right? But at the same time, I was kind of not surprised because we have a family member who just graduated from college in his 20s, and we gave him some money to buy some stocks. So he bought Google, maybe one, maybe a share of Amazon, and then he was like, "Wow, I wonder if I should buy some Bitcoin." And we're like, "No, what are you talking about? <laughs> you just bought your first stock, and now you want to get into Bitcoin?" So. I feel like he is not the only one in the world who doesn't understand Bitcoin but thinks they should be getting in on it. Right. And I, I mean, I think people love to invest in things that have made other people a lot of money, and that's just <laughs> causing a lot of momentum right now. Yeah. Because, well, this, this, at least this particular cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, the idea first came in September of 2008. Yes. So, but most of the growth has been within just this last year, right? It's definitely taken off this past year. Bitcoin has gone through peaks and troughs in the past, but 2017 has absolutely been a breakout year. All right. Well, let's 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 go back to the beginning. And it all goes back to a person named Satoshi Nakamoto, or is it a person or a bunch of people? We don't know. It's a mystery. Let's uh, let's unlock <laughs> this mystery. We're not going to solve the mystery, but you can at least explain the mystery for us. Sure. So, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he or she or they are, um, came up with the idea of Bitcoin about, I mean, I mean, it was 2008, it went live in 2009. For a really long time beforehand, probably about 20 years or so, people were trying to create a currency that was native to the internet. And this was a way, it was sort of the libertarian's dream at the time. It was a way to bypass an intermediary. People were upset with the central bank. Um, and so this was viewed as a way around all of that. If you can create your own currency native to the internet, you can set all of the rules yourself with computer code. Um, you can create something new in a way to bypass the system, create a new e economy of sorts. And this was September of 2008. So this is at a, a pretty low ebb in. Americans' feelings of uh, happiness right. with their government and money. 
Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think the timing was important, but really it was it just came down to the technological breakthrough that just happened to match with that time, if anything. And that is, if I'm correct, blockchain? Correct. Is that the technical? Okay, that so is. here we go. Here's another one of those buzzwords you're going to see, people. Blockchain. And blockchain is? Blockchain, the easiest way to look at what a blockchain is, is saying it's like a database, or it's like an accounting ledger. It's a, it's a database that you can put entries into. You can't take anything out of. So, if you want to make any changes, you have to put in another entry. So, what you end up having in the Ooh, end... Like a constitution. Yeah, in a, in a sense. Right? Do we have to do that? Do we have to put in amendments, and then we have to put in amendments to amend amendments? I probably should not have needed to interrupt you on that, but I suddenly made the connection. It's a permanent record. So. Yeah, yeah. So it's a permanent record of of all transactions in the past. It's a perfect record of who owned what and when. And so um, with that, you can do all sorts of interesting things. Yeah, and so one of the interesting things was Bitcoin. That's been the most successful interesting thing. Um, later on, I do want to circle back around and talk about some of the more broader implications for what blockchain can do for us, because I think that's maybe more um, exciting for long-term investors than just sheer Bitcoin, but we're still going to focus right now on Bitcoin. So, sure. he, she, whatever, Satoshi Nakamoto uh, wrote this paper, and it created the idea of having this permanent ledger. But this permanent ledger is housed on Many different people's computers, right? And that's what makes this special. So uh, there's nothing special about a database that can keep track of things. Yeah, it's not blowing. We, my mind. we can all do that, yeah. but the fact that this one is distributed, it lives in computers around the world. Anyone can install the Bitcoin software and become a node in the Bitcoin network. And and so when this entire network can be run distributed, that's very different from a network. A computer network being run in a centralized way. And so that was the breakthrough. Being able to run in a distributed way that's also secure for the first time. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds of mining, because woof, that gets kind of crazy. But essentially, how new Bitcoins are created right. is what well, would you actually you should probably explain it. How are new Bitcoins created? <laughs> so you you touch the word mining. So there are miners. These are the people who are running the nodes on the Bitcoin network. These people are their computers are solving increasingly difficult math problems. They're just trying to find a random sequence of numbers. Um, the winner gets whatever new Bitcoin is released. And this happens about every 10 minutes or so. And so they're competing to win the new Bitcoin. And right now, there are about 16 million Bitcoins in circulation. And there will be 21 million in the end over time. So these miners compete to win over the new blocks of Bitcoin. And that's what adds new Bitcoins to the network. They also are the ones who verify transactions across the network. So they serve two main purposes. One is to create the currency, and the other one is to verify everything that goes across it. But that doing that provides the incentive for them to keep the network running. So the incentive that that keeps Bitcoin functioning is built right into the code and the miners are the ones who make that possible. And if I'm someone at home, I'm thinking, "Oh, I'm just going to Go and install this software, and then I'm going to start mining bitcoins on my computer. Easy peasy, right? Not so much. No. <laughs> it used to be in the very early days. Any of us could have Bitcoin running on our computer right in front of us right now and be competing for Bitcoin or verifying those transactions. But as the market has become more competitive, 
it's become increasingly difficult for any one person to win in any of those given competitions. So now we're seeing fleets of supercomputers, you know, dueling it out to see who can win the network and run those big mining operations. Yeah, massive computing power. Is there any sort of arbiter here? For so, for example, they're solving these math problems. Who's creating the math problems? It's built into the code, and that gets pretty complex <laughs> this with the security. This is where we say, don't worry, don't worry about it. Okay, okay, got it. It's called a cryptographic hash function, for short. Oh, of course. Right. So, so My favorite hash function. So, the, the shortest way to explain that is it's very difficult to find the answer, but once you find the answer, it's very easy to verify. And, and whatever the problem was is just set in the code from the very beginning. Gotcha. Do you? Do you really? <laughs> really? Well, here's the thing about it, right? So, crypt, right, crypto means secret or hidden in Greek. So there's all it's already built into this whole system some sort of mystery, right? It's created by this person who may or may not exist with it. I mean, the whole thing is just so sci-fi, and it just feels like something out of a novel. Yeah. I feel like proponents tend to kind of brush off the concern about, but where does the value come from? You know, because they'll be like, well, for any currency, we agree that a dollar is worth a dollar. But then I'm like, no, but then so does the most powerful government in the world. They right. also agree that this dollar is worth a dollar. So how, how, let's move into the value. How is the value of Bitcoin even determined? Yeah. So I think Bitcoin in some ways is its own case study. Not it's not representative of all cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin originally just was a peer-to-peer -peer payment platform, but increasingly it's becoming the reserve currency, I guess you could say, for all other cryptocurrencies, and that means it's also becoming a store of value. And when something becomes a store of value, sort of like gold, um, the most important metric is the number of believers. So to what extent all this this news that happens, all these changes are made to the code. All that matters is how it affects the number of believers, and the number of believers essentially determines the market value. So, I would say there is very little fundamental real value in the Bitcoin network beyond just what people say it is. Um, so, that's just Bitcoin. But for other cryptocurrencies, part of why this movement is so fascinating is because this is money built into the internet. And that money represents real utility of some type generally so you can so those tokens have value because you can trade them in for some work in an application that's running on the on whatever blockchain network and all these different cryptocurrencies have their own applications and have their own use cases and so the extent to which those networks grow in value and demand for those applications grows that determines the, the value of the network and the value of each individual token. Yeah, that's the first time you've used the word token. Can you go ahead and talk about that a little bit more? Sorry, this is, are we getting too weeded? No, this is this is fine. Okay. Um, so I would say I know it's fine for you. I just want to make sure. I know you're good talking about. It. I just want to make sure that I wish that my my listeners could yell back into their uh, radios right now and be like, yes, no, we're good. We're staying. In, we're, we're, we're keeping up. I'll do my best. Okay. So Bitcoin with a capital B. I would say that is the crypto. Currency, but Bitcoin with a lowercase b would be the token. So the the cryptocurrency is the platform as a whole, and the token is just the pieces of it. So the U.S. dollar is the platform, but each dollar and cents would be a token. So I think okay. that's a that's oh, a yeah. good analogy. Okay, that's yeah. not okay. That's I got that. That's not that bad. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> you good? I got. I got. I got. I got, I got, him. I got that. That's okay. Good. Um, 
So I get why a decentralized cryptocurrency is fantastic if、um, I'm doing something really illegal online. Right? Because it's not traceable. It's online. It's not traceable. So, like, this was of the dark web, right? Yeah, generally things are more traceable than you think they are.、Mm-hmm. And so, even with Bitcoin, I mean, there was a major fallout with Silk Road and stuff. And so, you're not as anonymous as you think you are, even using Bitcoin. But yes, there are other cryptocurrencies that have tried to make things more anonymous. More anonymous.、Um, people who like gold are also probably drawn to Bitcoin. And that's sort of like Armageddon aspect of. Like, if the government's going to fall, at least I've still got my, my Bitcoin. Yeah.、Um, but I'm generally a, like, a law abiding and optimistic person. So, why what, I, should I be? I don't think I should be using Bitcoin as a currency, but it is becoming more common. People can use it for goods and services.、Mm-hmm. That's growing. Yeah. So, I don't think, probably in our case, there are very many use cases for Bitcoin beyond what we can do with. With MasterCard or Visa or、yeah. anything like that. What I will say though is, I do think that there is some value in maybe some less developed countries where their currency、yeah. is more unstable. And so they can put money into Bitcoin as a store of value versus seeing their money essentially light on flyer. And I think that is a very good use case. And they can also transport it over borders without having to go through a middleman, too. So there are some use cases with it being a transfer of value. In some ways, this. Transcends government and it's sort of a threat to governments.、Um, but yeah, for our cases, it's probably less so of a use case. Right. Well, I guess with Bitcoin, though, you don't have any insurance, is the wrong word. But if I use my credit card, I have fraud protection. If I, I, we've got things like FDIC to protect my money at the bank and places like there. The reason why these, there are these centralized entities like credit card companies, like Um, is, is providing me with protection. So,、mm-hmm. in, in the blo- I realize the blockchain is supposed to provide me with that protection, but it's not, it can't be this. Is it the, sa- is, is it the same? I would say taking down the Bitcoin network would be about just as difficult as taking down the internet. So, in that case, it is very secure.、Okay. But more on an individual basis, security is very important. And that just boils down to having good. Security practices and making sure not to do anything dumb. In theory, the computing power required to even keep this going could. Is it possible that it goes off a cliff? Because if, every t- if, we do start, if people actually start using Bitcoin and、mm-hmm. it's this forever ledger that's housed on massive supercomputers around the world,、yeah. uh, in theory, couldn't that data just bl- blow everything up? What do you mean? Well, if, it's, if, it's, if every time. If everyone starts, let's say everyone starts using Bitcoin and we're all using Bitcoin, at some point, does this ledger become too large for even computers to manage? And it just becomes unfeasible that, because if right now, even if we're managing it right now and there's only however much billion in、mm-hmm. circulation,、yeah. and we already require,、um, I don't know how many nodes there are. A lot. A lot. But yeah. Right. So there's only this much market cap out there, and we're already requiring these massive nodes, and already it's getting even harder to get in it for your one Bitcoin that you might get by being the computer that solves the puzzle. Yeah. Does that, I mean, that sounds like it could, in theory, go off a cliff if the data required to run Bitcoin grows so exponentially as more people adopt、mm-hmm. it. So I would say a short answer is no.、Um, 
there there definitely is a scaling problem in Bitcoin right now. It's very energy inefficient. Yeah, it costs um, more to mine mine Bitcoin than to get a bit than just a Bitcoin that you're mining, right? Yeah, and when you when you transact with Bitcoin, the the network still has to verify and go through go through a process there that's very energy inefficient too. The the good thing about this being run by software is that you can change the code. And so there are it is an open source software project and so there are a lot of people looking to make this more efficient. Mm-hmm. And so you come to something that's called forking. We didn't talk about this at all. Um, but essentially this is like this is the most contentious point in the Bitcoin community right now. People disagreeing about how to make it more scalable yeah. to allow for more transactions and stuff. And there are there are a couple different like technical ways people are wanting to take it, but but when people disagree, they can fork it, and then essentially the blockchain splits and starts going in two different directions based on different rules. So um, right now there's Bitcoin, and then the third largest cryptocurrency right now is Bitcoin Cash, which was forked out of Bitcoin in August. And so this is like everyone really just trying to tackle the that scaling issue. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I do think it'll be done just because you can constantly improve the code to make it more efficient. And we we've seen that in other currencies too. But yeah, I mean it's a huge yeah. issue to tackle right now. Yeah. More or less. All right, we'll work on that. Okay. <laughs> right, let's move on to Bitcoin as an investment idea. Um, because on Wall like Wall Street has definitely in the last few months started to talk about Bitcoin and dip their toes in. Um, so like Jamie Dimon over at um, JP Morgan. Thank you, JP Morgan. He said he's quoted as saying Bitcoin will eventually blow up. It's a fraud. It's worse than tulip bulbs, and it won't end well. He also said that he would fire any trader for trading Bitcoin um, because he, for being stupid. Basically, he said. Um, on the other side, other Wall Street figures. So, for example, Goldman Sachs CEO Lord, uh, Lloyd Blankfein. He said that he had a level of discomfort with Bitcoin. He said, "As I have a level of discomfort with anything that is new." And I thought, well, that's a fair. That's that's keeping your options open there. Um, and then I also read this other great quote in a New York Times article about a guy who invests in cryptocurrencies um, and digital currencies and assets. Like that's his full time job. And he was talking about Bitcoin and whether or not it was a bubble. And he said, if my landscaper ever asked me about crypto, that's the day I get out. <laughs> I feel like we're very close to that day, but maybe not. Um, like I said, we've got a 22-year-old family member who wants to get into Bitcoin without any idea of what that even means. Uh, so, Bitcoin, speculation, bubble, what are your thoughts? It is absolutely speculative, and the whole cryptocurrency market beyond Bitcoin is also very speculative. That said, the technology that underpins everything is very real. Um, it's very real for what blockchains can do outside of cryptocurrency, but I also think it is very real for what cryptocurrencies can be in the future. So, in my opinion, this is just classic hype cycle, where we've seen this several times before across history. The internet bubble is the last big example of something like this. I, I sort of think it's similar. Everyone's rushing to, all of these companies are rushing to sell tokens instead of stocks, and. A lot of companies are putting blockchain in their titles. That's very similar to companies who used to put .com <laughs> right, in, right. in their names before. Um, so I do think there are a lot of similarities with there being hype. So, um, so yeah, I think investors absolutely need to be careful. This also is a very small asset class. It's brand new, 
And because the technology running it is very real, I personally do believe it will be significantly larger over time as new applications are found. But it's probably going to be a very rocky road getting there. Yeah, I, I saw that only 2% of Americans owned or have ever owned Bitcoin. And it's a, limited, it's a limited quantity. There's only ever going to be so many Bitcoin in the world. Yeah. Which is. Yeah, so there's only going to be 21 Bitcoin total. And I do understand the sentiment of when everyone suddenly becomes yeah. interested, it makes sense to become a little bit skeptical. But at the same time, I think there are there's something like 11 or 12 million millionaires in the US. And so there's only enough Bitcoin in total. And by the end goal, essentially for Bitcoin, that they can't even own two of them, and so that does show. And the market cap is about 120 billion. So even if this just becomes a small piece of a lot more people's portfolio, which really isn't that much out of the question, this can be worth so much more. So don't focus on the immediate Bitcoin and what's necessarily what people are freaking out about right now. What are you focusing on? What are you looking at as an investor, not a speculator? Sure. So, I'll just disclose, I actually do own some Bitcoin. Ooh, where did you buy it? Uh, I bought in early 2017, actually. So, oh, okay. so it, was, it was just more of an being interested in it. Yeah. I wanted to learn more about it. But I've been following it for a while longer than that. I'm also, I also own some Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency. But but my approach for investing in general is I, I'm willing to invest very small percentages in my portfolio, less than 1% of my portfolio, in order to learn more about this. I recognize that the upside is significantly larger than the downside, potentially. And what I'm really looking for are the next $100 billion ideas, trillion-dollar ideas. So, I'm not I'm not just jumping around buying a bunch of different things. I'm taking a very slow and measured approach to figuring out which ideas stick. Because at the end of the day, this is not investing in stocks. This is closer to venture investing. This is more like seed stage investing. Because many of these new cryptocurrencies, when when you can buy them, they actually don't function yet. So, right. um, I do think it's it's good to take it slow, and that's what I'm doing personally. But I also am taking a very open-minded approach and sort of trying to surf the learning curve, trying to stay on the very steep end of things, so that I can spot these opportunities before they turn into something much bigger. We have a friend who, as a lark, he bought um, a Bitcoin for fifty dollars. Nice! <laughs> wow! Because it's like Bitcoin. What did we say today? Bitcoin is what, like seventy five hundred, seventy six hundred? Yeah. Where is it today? It's about seventy five hundred. Yeah, yeah. So I was. Anyway, it's not a bad right. That's what everyone wants, though. But he bought it a really long time ago, just for the heck of it, because he's kind of a tech savvy kind of guy. Um, he never expected this to happen, but he's going to hold on to it for a very long time. Yeah, and see where it awesome. takes him. That's so. awesome. I do think people should be very open minded about this. I think just it being something new, something hyped, it's easy to laugh at. But once you dig into it, I haven't met anyone who's dug into this that became a skeptic. Everyone who digs into this becomes far more optimistic, and I think that's pretty telling. Now, when you say digs into it, you're talking more specifically around uh, understanding the technology, the understanding how essentially the monetary system of this works, and understanding where it can go from here. Yeah, I think it's possible I'll pay for my lack of vision one day, but I think this isn't for me. That's okay, though. Oh right? yeah, that's oh, totally yeah, it's okay. perfectly fine. Thanks.
All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it's fascinating. It's incredibly fascinating. Uh, and so I really appreciate you coming on the show and explaining it to us. Yes, thank you again for having me. Yeah, actually, you're going to stick around because we're going to do a little quiz and see how well you guys know um, a few things around currency and cryptocurrency. Yeah. Uh-oh. No, Sounds you'll be great. fine. <laughs> Every time it rains, it rains pennies from heaven. All right. Well, that was a fun rabbit hole to go down, and now we're going to have some fun with it. I've got um, it's your standard Motley Fool answers quiz. Let's finish the show episode segment. Yeah, outstanding. <laughs> Let's do this. All right. I've got four questions about currency and cryptocurrency, and I want to see if you guys can guess it. I think together you will be able to get all of these. All right. All right. So this is collaborative. Or... Yeah. If you want to, do you want to collaborate? Let's be Teamwork. collaborative. Yeah. Teamwork. All right. We're open even, source. Even famous musicians are singing the praises of cryptocurrency. Bjork just announced that you can purchase her ninth album using Bitcoin, AudioCoin, Litecoin, or Dashcoin. Even though she was the first to wear a swan to the Oscars, she was not the first to accept cryptocurrency. What Spice Girl was reportedly the first to accept Bitcoin for her solo album, For Once in My Life, when it was released in December of 2013? So my problem is I don't know the name of any of the spice. I'm just gonna say sporty spice. <laughs> just like come up with a word and then stick spice after it. Gluten free spice. Gluten free spice. L- llama spice. Llama, <laughs> llama spice. Crypto spice. Crypto spice. The answer is scary spice, aka Ooh. Mel B. Wow. All the way that back in December of 2013. <laughs> All right. First launched in January 7 of 2014, the cryptocurrency Coinye was abandoned after a trademark dispute for using which hip hop artist as its mascot? Kanye. Uh, I'm going to assume. Yeah. Probably a good guess. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, three days later, the development team stated uh, after this trademark dispute, uh, three days later, the tra- development team stated that they had removed all references to West, but instead they were using a half man, half fish hybrid for their logo, which is a nod to a South Park episode in which Kanye West fails to rec- realize that people are jokingly calling him a gay fish. So this is this was the logo, by the way, for Kanye. It is a half man, half fish. That's good. And there's a, there's a resemblance there. Well, take that up with the lawyers. <laughs> this lady has appeared on more currency to date than anyone else. 30 countries, in fact. Queen Elizabeth, right? It's got to be Queen Elizabeth. That's what I would guess. Yeah. It's Queen Elizabeth. Her, the first country to feature the Queen uh, was Canada, which issued a banknote in 1935 featuring her as an eight year old. Oh, but it was adorable. <laughs> uh, as countries have gained independence from Britain, some have removed her from the currency. However, in at least 20 countries, the Queen remains front and center. Nice. All right, last question. Put the U.S. coins in order of how much it costs to make them, from most expensive to least. This is not a function of their actual value, by the way. Just how much does it cost to make the four major coins? Oh, we're sticking with the four. We're, we're not with doing the four. like the Sacagawea no, or the we're Susan sticking B. With David. The four. All right, Susan B. Anthony. Susan so, starting B. with Davis. the most expensive. The quarter. Should we go with the quarter? It's the biggest. It's the biggest. I'll say that, but there must be a surprise here. So let's go with the quarter. Then let's go with the penny. The penny? Let's go with the penny. Hmm. <laughs> Aaron disagrees. We have a I'm fork. Gonna, We've I'm, got I'm a gonna, fork I'm in gonna your fork decision. I'm going to fork this and yeah. say the okay. nickel. You're going to say the nickel? Yeah. And then I'll say the penny. And then I'll say the dime. All right. I'm gonna, I'll just go size wise. I'm going to say that the dime's more expensive than the nickel. 
Okay. Are takes you ready? more to, to get that small precision. Aaron's fork was more correct, although not no. totally oh. correct. Well, I can fork again, right? Fork again. <laughs> so the quarter costs uh, almost nine cents to make. A nickel costs eight cents to make. That's right. It costs more to make a nickel than a nickel. Uh, dime costs roughly four cents, and a penny is one point six cents. Man, I was way off. Yeah. So, uh, why not just make them out of cheaper metals, you might be saying. Experts say it would co- save the government about $39 million a year. However, other experts say that it would cost businesses up to $10 billion to retrofit coin machines to recognize the change in weight that would come from changing the metals. Huh. Or just turn it crypto. There you go. It'll Boom, all be crypto. Solution. I'm going to call it now. It's going to happen. <laughs> Let's see if we can get in on that. <laughs> All right, so that's it. That's all the questions I got. You guys did pretty well. Three out of four. Not bad. Yeah, I think we did all right. Yeah, very nice. Especially Llama Spice. She was was awesome. I can swear I was right. (laughs) (laughs) Llama Spice. Watch out, she spits. All right, Aaron, thank you for joining us. It was wonderful to have you here and explain this. This is a really fascinating conversation, even though I'm not totally sold. But, you know, that'll be on me. In time. Thank you for having me. In time. In time, we'll have you back. And I'll be like, oh, Aaron, I should have listened. Sounds great. <laughs> All right, that's the show. It is edited forkily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, a few of you have left reviews uh, for the show on iTunes in the last couple weeks, and I want to say thanks for doing that. One of you uh, isn't in love with our show, but that's okay. I'm still fine with uh, that. I'll be okay. <laughs> no hard feelings. It's fine. It was an okay review. I mean, it wasn't, it's not like one star, but yeah. I'm just going to cry myself. Single tear. <laughs> just one little tear. <laughs> one little tear. It's fine. Uh, all right. For Robert Brokamp and Aaron Bush today, thanks again. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.